It's like we're an old married couple the way you just talked to me. <laughs> oh, At least goodness. I'm assuming that's what it's like. I'm not actually married, nor am I old, but it had that it had that edge. Hello. <laughs> Hello. How are you? I'm a little cranky today. My, I've got my cranky pants on, apparently. That that will make this fun. <laughs> Jim knows Joe. Jim knows Joe as Cranky Joe. He knows he knows what that's all about. So yeah, I feel like when we talk to people who know Joe, there's a there's a deeper level of understanding. Well, we used to have a whole gradation of things: cranky, grumpy. You know, it it just ran the whole spectrum. Well, sure. Crazy. You, you got to make the nuances. So, uh, so Jim, should we tell people who Jim is, Christian? I, yeah, Jim Spetta. Yes, yeah, Jim Spetta. I mean, that, that in and of itself kind of says it all. But, um, so in my mind, uh, Jim is sort of a telecommunications guru. This means you can, uh, like fix a cable modem and stuff like that, Jim. <laughs> Regrettably, I can do that, uh, and I think that's probably about 25% of my dialogue with my colleagues some days. <laughs> are, you, are you one of those? See, I've, I've always been one of those guys wherever I work. And, you know, eventually it gets out that you can kind of fix computer things, and, um, and, and so someone has a – like back in the day, back when people printed stuff out on printers, um, those would always – there would always, always be some problem with printing. And, 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 so could and you people, fix the printer? Yeah, or? I could usually – and it was always help with like Windows machines too. And of course, you know, I'm not was never a Windows fan, but I could figure it out usually by rebooting. That was usually the answer. Rebooting. I was usually pretty good at um, figuring out the the jam of paper in the photocopier. But there's not a whole area of law about photocopiers, sadly. Oh, isn't that isn't that copyright? Oh, maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's less to do with the paper, the paper jamming. Yeah. Yeah, I, I worked. I worked in a copy center one summer. Really? Yeah. So I know all about the big machines. Used to love to run those big copy jobs. It <laughs> was fun. Was this a brand name copy center or a no, local? No, copy this is, center? this was an in-house sort of job. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, not my house, but you know, it was a another organization. But that's. I, I don't think. I don't know, Jim. It, it, is this is this what you signed up for to talk about? I don't know if this is. <laughs> look, look, I'm happy to do it. And uh, since I've become an associate dean, I've learned that there's no such thing as a job description. So. Oh, there you I go. I love it. I love it. Well, that you you'll, you'll fit right in on the show then. <laughs> so there's lots of stuff going on in the world of speaking of me being cranky. There's lots of stuff going on in the world where you're we're 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 reading headlines that whether we're lawyers or not might make us kind of scratch our heads a little bit or wonder what's going on. So there's you know there's things like um, you know Comcast and Netflix uh, make an agreement that that they'll deliver Netflix better or something like that. And you might think to yourself, well, I thought they were already supposed to deliver it. Like what's the what's going on there? And then you say, oh, Comcast is buying Time Warner cable company. And then you think, oh great, that's what we need. Really big cable companies to become now, one I, I read mega about the, cable I read company. their filing in the, so so Comcast filed in the FCC I, was it yesterday or today? I don't know when they filed, but it, it was, was yesterday. It, it was yesterday and today they spent time up on the hill uh, talking about the merger. Yeah, so I, I, I scanned through this document they provide. It looks like it's going to be great. This is going to, I mean... <laughs> Comcast's story is that it's going to be all great. All the problems with broadband and cable TV are going to be solved by oh, this merger. I read through heaven. it. There's nothing... This is the solution to the problems oh that we've gosh. been having. Thank I, heaven. From what it, I can tell. This is, as they say, the merger to end all mergers. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. This this is the merger of the future, and it always will be. Um, 
so yeah, you you know you see stuff like that, or you or you maybe you see a headline about you know in Europe last week they have some kind of they pass some kind of network neutrality rule in the European Parliament, and you're like, well, I don't even know what the European Parliament is, so what does that mean? Um, and are they doing things differently there? And I thought we were supposed to do something like that, but maybe we don't do something like that. Anyway, it's kind of bewildering. A lot of things going on and out there in the world. We already talked about this with Christina Mulligan, we too. We did a bit, Jim, yeah. And, and so I feel like we've solved all these problems oh already, my gosh. haven't we? Okay. Have so we this not? Is a bad, this is a bad booking of a guest on my part. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure Jim hasn't. I'm sure we. we, we Jim, you you can cover all these issues of telecom law and merger, all this in about 45 minutes, right? I mean, there's nothing. That's exactly the the period of time uh, that these issues uh, merit. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you talked to Christina. Uh, what a couple of weeks ago. One of the great things about this field is uh, things are changing so quickly. Uh, they've been changing so quickly for 15 or 20 years, but it it, it just makes it a lot of fun. And so let's just uh, maybe to take care of it here in a few minutes. Maybe the show will be over after this. I'll just ask you one question: uh, the um, Time Warner Comcast merger, good or bad? It, good or bad depends largely on for whom. Um, and I think <laughs> uh, I think the question about whether it's um, good or bad for consumers overall is a really difficult question. I think that the way in which we usually think about mergers is incredibly challenged by not just this merger, but all of the cable mergers that have come beforehand, because when we think about whether the companies are competing against one another and whether the merger will eliminate competition, the easiest answer in this merger is they're not competing against one another, and therefore, how could there possibly be an injury to competition? So let, let, Let's hold, stop there and explain. So, so is that because they're not competing against each other because they're not serving the same markets because they're local cable monopolies? They're not serving the same uh, residential end users or even business end users because they are not operating in the same geographic markets. Um, and that's that's the important qualification, and you've sort of seized upon it. You said competing in the same markets. If And when I say the first instinct, our first instinct is to think of the customers of cable companies to just be, you know, the people who sign up for cable service at the end user in their homes or in their businesses. And as to those customers in those markets, they're not competing head to head. Because um, there aren't just end users, there are end users in LA or in Chicago or in Boston or in Atlanta or in whatever, right? You don't, you, if, I, if I'm living in Atlanta, I can't buy cable service from a company that serves Massachusetts. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But that's just the first level of thinking about this problem. Um, the big but that comes after it, of course, is that the cable companies aren't just acting in the markets uh, where we're talking about the people who subscribe to uh, the video or the internet service from the cable companies. They also act in advertising markets, in content markets, um, and in distribution markets with respect to all of the um, companies who are, let's say, upstream of them, who are creating content and selling content or creating advertising and selling advertising. And in that sense, the merger really does effect a change in the scale of a very important purchaser or actor um, in those other markets. And those are national, the ones for ad sales, uh, the ones for um 
con- selling video uh, content in the form of program television and that kind of stuff? My instinct is that they're national and that in some cases they may even be international. I- international, yeah. Um, huh. Yeah, so, so in... in uh, in some sense, the, the worry is well. The, the worry is that they're going to have uh, um, maybe you know too much, and I'll put too much in quotes for right now. Market power over suppliers, um, in the same way that you know we see Walmart has a lot of power over people who supply uh, everyday goods. Um, and and in another sense, their traditional the traditional customers of if we go to like broadcast stations. Are are not in fact the end users. They are the advertisers, right? And and the consume and the the television watchers are the product. You know that's kind of the the um, the famous description of of what's really going on in the TV business. It's selling cable, eyeballs. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the cable companies have both, right? <laughs> We're both the product and the uh, and the customers. And this is we the end users. Um, we're the customers because we pay a monthly bill, um, which is increasing, you know, which seems to be higher and higher. I don't know if in real dollar terms, uh, how much it's been increasing, but, um, uh, we pay a lot. Uh, but also they have, uh, traditional advertisers as customers and they sell us to those, uh, advertisers. And, um, and as I understand it, you know, exactly what you said that, um, that these two companies, Time Warner and Comcast serve different geographic markets. And so there will be no customer who after this has one fewer choice among cable suppliers than they did before. Um, but advertisers will certainly have one fewer customer, uh, one fewer uh, com- um, provider to go to, as will suppliers, content suppliers, and others who, who sell their products for redistribution to the cable. Ch- is, is that a rough summary of, uh, or, or a, a legitimate framing of the issue? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you have to add on to this in some significant way, Comcast or the merged company is also itself a content supplier. Um, and therefore, uh, in addition to the fact that it gains scale in the distribution um, market and therefore has greater scale, uh, whether that scale equates market power or not is sort of the essential end question, but it'll have greater scale vis-a-vis unaffiliated advertisers and content suppliers, but it is also itself a content supplier uh, and therefore, it, and this is because it went out and bought a studio, right? It went out and bought NBC. Um, right. Before it bought NBC, Comcast had some um, some of its own content, and some of that content was particularly important in uh, some regional networks, such as Comcast's regional sports networks. Um, and so, the fact that Comcast uh, or the merged company would be a content supplier as well further complicates the incentives that it might have as it grows scale in the distribution network and the sorts of actions that it might take versus unaffiliated content providers and advertisers, or, or, or so the argument goes about why this merger is of unique concern. So if it used its, just to speculate wildly, if it used its, uh, so make sure I understand the kinds of things you might be suggesting, um, that if it used its buying power over uh, unaffiliated content to uh, weaken those content providers, it would benefit, arguably, um, in its selling of the content it makes itself through NBC Universal. It would have fewer competitors in the sale of content if it used its buying power to weaken those content makers. Sure. Yes, sure. That's exactly one version of the argument that uh, that people are worried about. 
So you have to, you have to get your arms around an awful lot of different pieces of a very complex dynamic moving puzzle to even begin to think through whether this would be, um, a, a benefit to folks, uh, or not a benefit to folks. And we haven't even talked yet about providing internet, broadband internet service. Now, is that, does that wind up getting analyzed through the same geographic market question that the, that the, you know, the, the table, um, excuse me, the, the television, the subscription television service does? Is that just based in the geography? I think, yes, it, it's based on uh, the exact same markets. And, and again, uh, Comcast or the merged company is the center of what you would say is a two-sided market. On the downstream, there are the customers, the retail customers who are subscribing to internet service. And there, it's probably not the case that there's geographic competition between the two companies, but upstream with respect to the to the company's relationship with unaffiliated websites, unaffiliated video streaming, uh, people who advertise on the internet, um, it's 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 a it's a national market. Um, and and we're seeing increasingly in the internet and the communication spaces these sorts of two-sided platform um, competitions or issues come up uh, repeatedly, where you have to find the market on both sides of the platform, and the definition uh, may or may not usually is not the same. And another way, I guess, of, of thinking about the different markets is to um, this is the way I think of it. It could be totally wrong, but that. Um, that we have one entity engaged in a bunch of different kinds of businesses here. And so one business is the wires business, the last mile wires business, where they provide wires to uh, our houses. Uh, um, and the kind of wires they provide are turn out to be better, I think, for uh, um, um, have some advantages for broadband internet over um, copper wire um, and uh, um, for telephone, for, for telephones, I'm trying to think of what the other kind of wire. Oh, and 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 the power company, right? So those are the three entities who have traditionally strung wire, and people have tried to do stuff with the uh, uh, um, internet over the power over the power lines before, and it's is not as advan- advantageous as as the coaxial cable that the cable companies typically lie. So that, that that's one business is just wires to the house, which can be used to carry data, and, and then the other business, I guess, is the internet. Um, um, uh, interconnections, right? So this is an interconnect business to connect between networks, and they they are vertically integrating that business. Uh, they're in the um, they they're buying studios. They're trying to be in the content business. They're trying to uh, be in the advertising business. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different businesses that this one entity is engaged in, and and I'm wondering to what extent the the vertical integration here, the the tendency to um, uh, to own the entire stack down from the consumer all the way up to the um, to, to the set on which people are using cameras to take uh, to make movies uh, is 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 driven by the fact that this you know you've got some companies which originally became profitable from uh, operating a local cable t- cable TV monopoly and of course over time because that's an, a local monopoly probably a natural monopoly the cost of that is going to be there's going to be pressure to drive that cost down. Um, to something which is some kind of cost plus base pricing, or uh, not, there aren't going to be a lot of profits there. And so, uh, you know, the worry is that you're going to uh, see companies leverage the control over that last mile um, to move further and further up the stack where more and more of the profits are. Um, I also don't know if that's a correct description of it, but when I think about all those different businesses, one of the things that we came to in our discussion with um, uh, uh, a few weeks ago with Christina was, you know, why in the world do we let these last mile businesses do anything else? 
um, how, how is that helpful um, to let the last, maybe you want to let some of these other businesses vertically integrate, but the last mile one seems problematic. So uh, let me say a couple of things. The first, which is, I agree as a general matter that the uh, fact of vertical integration in this market is what creates some of the fears of anti-competitive conduct or even really the possibilities of anti-competitive conduct and, of course, something that, that, that makes the analysis more complex. Um, a couple of things I might not sort of see same way are, I don't think it. you can say that if there's a natural monopoly in wires, it's going to be driven down to cost and therefore create the incentive to move into other markets unless you have the intermediate step that somebody makes the decision to price regulate the wires, right? Right. Yeah. I was kind of assuming that that political pressure would be there, but of course I could be wrong about that. Well, it's not been there uh, in the last 20 years. Um, in Since the Telecommunications Act of 1996, Traditional telephony has become less and less price regulated. And of course, we've never had price regulation um, on retail internet services um, ever. Um, you know, and whether the relevant time frame is just the last 10 years of broadband or the last 20 years of, you know, sort of dial-up internet service uh, included, there's never been enough political momentum for price regulation uh, of internet service. Um, whether that will change... Um, I don't know, but I think it would be a hard thing um, to sort of see politically at at, at at least the national level uh, a lot of momentum. It, it's kind of understandable. I mean, in a way that you know, if, to the extent you think of the the wire um, providers as as having at least some kind of quasi monopoly, I know you guys, the antitrust guys, probably hate <laughs> hate a term like that. But um, the price discipline on the cable company and the provision of internet. Um, you know, 20 years ago or, or 15 years ago, or maybe even 10 years ago was that there was an available substitute, which was very cheap, which was not having internet service in your house. And that's increasingly becoming a, you know, a non-proposition. Um, and so the, uh, the, the available substitutes, are, you know, in a lot of places, uh, we'll take, you know, Athens where we are for one, uh, there, there is, um, uh, DSL, it doesn't come to my house. My only choice is charter uh, charter internet. Um, DSL is not even an option. But even if it were, it's a lot slower. Um, so I wonder if it's changed uh, some in the past, uh, you know, twenty years. Where we're now, we're moving. You know, you, you, I got. I don't know. Think about these things. Like in, in most monopolies, you think, well, if you just wait long enough, maybe technological innovation will disrupt, right? The uh, the monopolist, and and there will be competition, which will develop because of technology. And yet, here it seems like uh, the, with the evolution of technology, it's really people's taste for internet that's changed. And now it's more and more problematic uh, that there is only one provider of the last mile wires. I I think that's fair, and I I think I would put it um, more in the first version that you put it in, which is that there's been a change that has it changed in consumer taste and consumer usage, as well as changes in the business models of content providers that has made, um, the market, uh, perhaps more concentrated than it once was. If you go back 20 years to the dial up era, um, because everyone was operating over telephone wire, um, there were thousands and thousands of ISPs in most uh, places, and it really didn't matter which ISP you were using. If you go back 10 years, cable and the telephone companies, DSLs, were fair, DSL products were fairly competitive uh, products in terms of speeds and other performance issues. And in the last five years, as video and other high bandwidth um, applications have come to dominate the market, the 
DSL over old-fashioned copper um, has not been a competitive product with the speeds that cable is able to provide. And so the only places in which there is the um, significant competition among two wireline providers are those places in which Verizon has deployed fiber, what it called its Fios products, um, and AT&T has deployed what's called a very fast DSL service, call, uh, and its brand is Uverse, but that's less than, I think, the 20% um, of residences across the country. And this premise or this issue of where are we in terms of how much concentration in the market is where you're pay placing your essential bets. So someone like uh, my friend Susan Crawford looks at the, this situation as the FCC did a few years ago in the National Broadband Report and says, we are back to a situation of more or less monopoly. Cable is more or less a monopoly in most places, and therefore we ought to regulate it like a public utility. Other folks are not willing to sort of say we're stuck in forever where we are today and we're going to be optimistic that yes cable may have a significant market concentration now but there are some fringe competitors there are other competitors and we think that there's going to be entry into the market and that's what we'd like to see and so we are not going to um, roll out the heavy guns of public utility regulation even if the world isn't as competitive as we might like today and that was a weird part of the comcast report too you read it and there's a section of it which talks about how great its potential competitors will be and how its product won't be nearly as competitive, might not be as competitive, right? Because they have to say, well, these great new wireless technologies are coming down the pike, and uh, uh, and uh, maybe they refer to the DSL in there. I forget. I just you know scan through it. Um, but they are in an odd position in this filing, aren't they? To have to talk about the potential, um, if not obsolescence of their product, the potential reduction. And I, I don't know if that. I don't they know if their SEC, I don't know if their SEC filing looks the same as their FCC filing. <laughs> they have to talk up the prospect of the of the coming alternatives if they're not present alternatives. Right. Um, right. And what is the Jim? What do we? Where does the wireless piece of this fit? Because what what Christian was describing, you know, with copper uh, wire for your phone and coax for your cable. Where's the wireless piece of the picture in terms of internet service? So far, um, uh, wire, well, wireless internet is, of course, incredibly important, and there's increasing um, use of wireless internet in some populations. Uh, people's first um, and most consistent use of the internet is over their smartphones and not over a wireline. Um, but for the most part, um, the economic evidence that I've seen doesn't suggest that high-speed wireless is, uh, you know, from a from a Verizon or an AT and T, is a market substitute for a high-speed wireline internet service at your home. Most folks who are um, in the in in the first market are in both markets at the same time. They're I'll, I'll ask you what I asked Christine. I don't have you seen this P cell demo, Jim? Have I seen Do what? The, have you seen this P-Cell demo, this uh, new company that uh, has been developing these uh, personal bubbles of uh, spectrum with the, uh, or electromagnetic, you know, they beam it right at you and provide very high-speed internet and can serve a whole bunch of people? Put it in the show notes, but have you, have you heard of this? No, I haven't heard of this. Um, I have seen some uh, products where a wireless company will place um, a, a small cell in your home as an attempt to sort of provide you high speed to your home plus then the mobility that you're usually looking for when you subscribe to wireless internet but but I haven't seen the the p cell 
Yeah, it's 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 interesting because there may be some uh, technologies um, coming out which solve a lot of the traditional problems of uh, of providing true wireless bandwidth. And we should just be absolutely clear: we're not talking about Wi-Fi. We're not talking about hooking up your a wireless uh, modem, a wireless router. Right, because that's on top of your that, cable. That's just on top of your cable. We're talking about right. uh, cell towers. Um, and, and maybe other kinds. Uh, but these are like a new kind of cell tower, which kind of keep track of all the devices and kind of aim. And, uh, um, it, it looks really, really cool. So, you know, I actually maybe had watched, competitor. I yeah. had watched that video. I'd forgotten about it, but I, but I had watched it when you mentioned it uh, from, from after you mentioned it last time with Christina. And it did look interesting, um, as a potential solution to the, to the difficulty using cell technology to provide lots of bandwidth, adequate bandwidth um, to a lot of people at once um, in a, in a concentrated area. Um, I mean, and there, the- there are a variety of legacy reasons here um, that are, that are at play that affect this um, both as a matter of economics and as a matter of, um, of regulation. I have a colleague in my engineering school named Michael Honig who sort of, went back to uh, a blank slate and said, if we were going to design a spectrum system that was free of all of our legacy allocations of spectrum, the free of the legacy allocation of spectrum to radio, to television, to the military, et cetera, how much personal bandwidth could we get out of a wireless network uh, using basically existing technology? And he said, oh, well, we could get enough bandwidth for five to 20 gigs um, uh, per person. But we have to be able to make to to reengineer the entire system in order to do that. And until we do, we're sort of waiting on incremental technological um, improvements, like you're talking about, with um, changes to cell structures or use of directional antennas, et cetera. Plus, trying to get the government to pump more spectrum out of existing uses, um, uh, like television, and into where the demand is, like mobile broadband. Now, obviously, the FCC is going to do that with its incentive auction over the next year or so, but um, but it needs to be even bigger than what the FCC is contemplating if we're going to get to wireless bandwidths that are going to compete with wireline bandwidths. What, what would the ideal... I, I don't know if... Um... What would the ideal market? How would that appear to you, Jim? Uh, and just to preface this, I think you know a lot of you know geeks that I follow, and and my own kind of geeky thought on this is everything should just be treated as a pipe, and uh, we should. Uh, and I'd be happy if we kind of paid for for bandwidth. You know, I just want my cable company. I don't want them to do all these bundles and all the nonsense. I just want them to promise me a certain amount of bandwidth in exchange for money. The same thing with the with phone companies. Um, and this should all be kind of transparent. You kind of pay for whatever is available kind of as time goes by, but are there, are there, uh, advantages to these somewhat more complicated business structures of these entities that are actually incentivizing the creations of new technologies or allocating them in efficient ways that maybe aren't apparent on the surface? And I, you know, I think of one kind of cynical thing, and that is that the, the more awful the cable companies are and the more they bundle and the more they, uh, um, charge monopoly prices uh, or use their monopoly power wh- where where they do have it, um, then the more incentive there is for a company like P-Cell uh, or the company that makes P-Cell to come in and do something great. So, uh, you know, maybe there's a little bit of forcing that happens that way. But is there something I'm not taking account of here that that justifies this kind of crazy, crazy quilt of, of companies and business methods in this area? Uh Flip side, or the da- you know, there are downsides to vertical integration, but there are definitely 
upsides to vertical integration as well, whether the vertical integration manifests itself as companies acting together in different layers and therefore gaining efficiencies in terms of designing a distribution network or efficiencies in terms of learning what their customers like and being able to provide that to customers or efficiencies in terms of bundles, right? Most of us buy at least some of the things that we buy in bundles. If you want to take a sort of um, ridiculous example, we don't buy tires and engines. We buy a bundle of parts that's a car. But if you want to take a non-ridiculous example, you know, most of us are buying um, internet service and, and phone service and cable television service from the same company if we're buying those things together. And we right. in a certain amount of efficiency from getting, you know, one bill and getting a customized offer uh, and, and things like that. And so there is, um, there are definitely efficiencies to vertical integration. And over and over again, in, in, in the history of communications policy, we've debated what are the advantages versus the disadvantages of uh, vertical integration and someone who looks at the world through a telephone lens says, oh, well, we generally have concluded vertical integration is a bad thing. But if you look at the world through the media lens, we've generally said, oh, vertical integration makes a lot of sense. And so we allowed the networks to integrate with the individual stations and allowed them to provide content. We allowed cable companies to get into the content business as late as um, 1992, Congress is debating a statute which would have prevented cable companies from being in the content business at all. And, um, you know, that the advantages of vertical integration um, are there. And so we should allow com uh, cable companies to be in the content business. And, you know, there was a lot of innovation early in the cable business. Um, something like HBO was an innovation of the cable companies who said, we need more content for our providers than we for our customers than we can get just by giving them you know the broadcast channels over our cable and so they were the ones who had the knowledge of the market and who were willing to put the capital behind this new form of content so you know there are advantages and there are disadvantages and while we have this new label for this debate in the internet area of net neutrality, it's really the same debate we've been having in communications policy since we had a communications system. Well, let me ask you, where does the, these two, you describe these two lenses, say a media lens or a telephone lens. And it sounds like one reason why we have these two different perspectives is because there was a time when the technologies involved were just very, very different and didn't overlap with each other. But you actually start, we, we had earlier been talking about the fact that you can buy all of your media stuff from the same place that will also sell you telephone stuff. It just happens to be telephone over the coaxial cable instead of over the other telephone line. So, so say more about where these two different lenses come from that, that seem to give you different answers and why the telephone lens isn't as persuasive in some of these media areas as you might as one might expect. Oh, I'm not saying that it's not. I think one can manufacture a case today for thinking about the the uh, internet network as more like a telephone network. Um, it's just that in our current situation, what we have, if we're sticking to the dominant infrastructure, which is cable, is we have a dominant infrastructure, a single wire, on which we have both a media service called cable television, which is regulated in one way, and an internet service, 
which mostly has been regulated under a telephone model of don't let the cable companies or the telephone companies bundle content and distribution together, make them be behave under net neutrality principles, et cetera. And the inconsistency of those two business models on, this, on the same wire is what's creating a lot of friction. Yeah, one thing that we talked about with Christina uh, a few weeks ago that um, uh, made some sense to me because it was in the context of the, uh, the Internet Connect agreement between Comcast and, and uh, Netflix, which... I guess the Netflix CEO came out and said it was more like a toll after the fact. You know, he was less sanguine about what actually had happened. Um, but that there's at least, you know, there's, there's a problem that we have. The problem is lots of people want the same thing at basically the same time. And so the problem is how to get a whole bunch of data to uh, a whole bunch of people who all want it simultaneously. And, and the argument against net neutrality is that, um, um, at, I'm not sure if it's the last mile level. If we could break up these companies a little bit, it might help. But that at least the people um, who are about to send the stuff out on the last mile, that they have some special information about how to solve this problem. They have the facilities. And it might help uh, um, to at least allow for the possibility of uh, agreements which might make it easier to get the data people want most at the time they want it. Um, And that net neutrality rules might you know, in, in their purest form might stand in the way of, um, if you like, kind of a Pareto optimal um, data transmission system. But I'm still not sure how that um, how that idea um, interferes at all with 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 another belief that um, the cable companies uh, that, the, that that whoever those people are, they shouldn't own also the the the, the miles uh, the the uh, the wires in the last mile. I don't know if that makes any sense. It didn't to me. What the last thing you said about those same people are who? Because the the agreement that you mentioned, Comcast and, and Netflix. So so Comcast is a is an internet uh, cable company, right? And it so it's the one delivering the packets to your house, right? And Netflix wants its packets to be treated a certain way. Maybe I'm using the wrong terminology. Wants its data to be transmitted with a certain efficacy right and and you know i i don't know exactly the terms of this deal but one way in which this kind of thing works is to you know this is the way that content delivery networks work and cdns work is that you don't have just like we said on that show you don't have just one computer that has the data on it or one set of hard drives one server somewhere that and and everyone who wants that data in the world connects to that one computer right instead and it's not even one data center right in fact you spread out the data across the globe to get it closer to where the people who are demanding it are, right, and so you can imagine that uh, the content owners who have very popular content, which is wanted all over the globe at the same time by yep. a lot of people, would want to enter deals to make sure, right, that that content is kind of everywhere in different regions and kind of set up in a way for simultaneous demand by lots of customers by uh, on a particular ISP. And does it turn out that you need Comcast in this example, in this illustration, does it turn out that you need them to cooperate with you and help with you technically to, to have that be the case, to have it, if you want to make it the case that that stuff is everywhere you want it to be as, um, for best on-time delivery. Well, my hesitation was that it made sense to me that that to the extent that we want to favor some packets because of the way that you know the demand patterns are working, that it might be that you would need the cooperation of people who sit kind of a, of the services which sit one layer up from the last mile, right? 
but I'm not sure that you that you need to uh, uh, that those same people need to own the wires that go from that service down to people's homes. No, See, they, they absolutely not. You do need a you may need a cooperation between um, the distribution network, the Comcast, and the content that's flowing over that network. Um, but you also may not. Uh, so to the extent that Comcast can engage in uh, packet inspection or some other technique in order to identify which packets are going to be entitled to priority service in a world in which we allow them to do that, um, they can affect most of that themselves. Um, what I understand the Comcast-Netflix agreement to be about is to be about a peering relationship, which is essentially a routing relationship that allows the uh, Netflix to get um, a better quality of service, but not differential preference once it's inside the Comcast network. It just gets to the Comcast network faster than if there had been no peering arrangement. Right. And so, right. And, 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 and I, I don't know if it was that agreement or not. Um, and if this is even accurate, but I understood that perhaps some, either some of their data or maybe this is another agreement would actually be located in, uh, the ISP's data centers, right? For, um, you know, like, like a CDN works, but instead of a CDN where the, the content delivery network has its own data centers spread all over the country, you actually locate, you know, your, your machines right there at the, at the ISP level. You always want to be closer. That's, I mean, that's the truth from the high speed trading markets. Um, exactly right. Yeah. Your server as close to your customer or to the interaction as possible, you're, you're doing better quality of service. And and is that something that should trouble people or not? That that um, you know the the infrastructure that the that the firm that owns the infrastructure that uh, on which these um, data travel uh, can enter these sorts of agreements. So with with data sources. So I'm not troubled by it, and let, let me tell you why I'm not <laughs> troubled by it, but also tell you. Um, why I think others are troubled by it. I'm not troubled by it um, in this circumstance because of the reality of how much of the data flowing across the access networks is Netflix data. Some some have measured it between 25 and 30 percent of peak time um, uh, peak time data, and that's just an enormous contribution to the cost of the distribution network. And so, when the distribution network sort of turns around and says, "I want to charge the cost causer for this um, for this to a certain degree," it, it doesn't trouble me personally. Why are people troubled by it? Well, they're not troubled because it is a technical definition or a technical violation of net neutrality. Because, at least as everything I've read, Comcast is not re-engineering the inside of the Comcast network so that Netflix packets have priority over other packets. They're just part of the general mix of packets on the Comcast network. Right. It sidesteps that. In fact, it sidesteps that whole issue by having it. Uh, shoot into the pipe closer to where it needs to wind up. Yes, but it's still the case that if the network itself is congested, network Netflix packets are going to fall out of the network at the same rate as all the other network, uh, all the other packets are falling out of the network. Right. So in that technical sense, they haven't violated the neutrality obligation. Here's why people, I think, are bothered by it, which is it has the effect 
because whatever Comcast charges Netflix, Netflix is going to pass along to its consumers. Um, it has the effect that now consumers who use their internet in one way are going to have an effective higher price for using their internet in that way than customers who um, who don't use their internet in that way, who don't use Netflix, for example. And that seems like a violation of the network neutrality, at least principle. Um, personally, I don't see it that way uh, because there are lots of premium content services available on the internet. I, I have to pay if I want articles from the Wall Street Journal or from the New York Times, but not so much if I want them from some other news, news source like the BBC. Um, so I don't particularly um, see it as a violation of um, of a non-discrimination value. So, so yeah, if you analogize um, the the fact that a Netflix uh, user uh, who's watching over the internet is paying something uh, just like someone who gets the Wall Street Journal online is paying something that a non-Wall Street Journal reader isn't paying, right? That 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 doesn't sound unfair. I hope I lawyered it up good. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, well, but here's the thing. So what if, Wall, let's suppose the Wall Street, char- I don't know what they charge, but let's suppose it's $10 a month that they charge. And um, and and Charter or Comcast, whatever, it looks at that and says, you know what, people who want the Wall Street Journal, uh, I, I look at what they're paying for the paper edition. I think they will, they're, they're undercharging here. Um and so we're going to, this is the true net neutrality violation. They said, we're going to have now the uh, uh, two tiers of internet service, the Wall Street Journal edition internet service and ordinary internet service. And for the Wall Street Journal internet edition, we're going to give you fast access to the Wall Street Journal, which just means unthrottled access. Uh, but that's going to cost you $5 more per month than the other tier. And we're going to make, you know, and this is such a good idea. We're going to have 20 different tiers of internet service, the, the silver package, the sports package. There's an image going around the internet that has this whole sets of, you know, that makes internet service look a lot like cable. The, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. So that would seem to be the problem. And, and I, and I took uh, your comment, uh, Jim, to be that um, through this interconnect uh, deal, there was kind of an implicit price uh, discrimination uh, against people who chose not to get Netflix, because I guess the whole service is now more expensive because of that deal? Well, I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, the, the price of Netflix will go up a little bit to people, of course, who, who subscribe to Netflix, because Netflix is paying Comcast you know, an amount that they didn't pay Comcast uh, previously. Um, but I wouldn't see it that way because of the way this deal is is structured, which is everybody gets the same service if they uh, subscribe to uh, Comcast and they subscribe to Netflix, right? So it's not um, discriminatory in the way that you're uh, identifying it with respect to, to a particular content provider, um, the Wall Street Journal. So, you know, I think one could describe it as discrimination, but I don't, um, I don't necessarily see it that way. I mean, my worry was slightly different, which is that um, it's when it's when Comcast is not only making a deal with a Netflix, but is also affecting the kinds of deals someone like Netflix would want to make by juicing or throttling the other things Comcast itself puts on the network. So in other words, it, it, reaching an arm's length deal when it isn't 
also competing with that very firm is one uh, set of facts, but a set of facts where they've got they're they're not just selling Netflix something; they're also competing with Netflix to sell a third thing to other folk, um, or the same thing to other folk. That am I making any sense? Is this oh, am I? That's exactly right. That's that friction that I talked about between the two business models that are living simultaneously on the uh, distribution uh, network's wires, and so um, the the essential problem of a net neutrality rule is that it's a rule that says the distributor can't engage in certain kinds of price discrimination that the distributor is perfectly entitled to dis- to to engage in on the cable side right and so we all know that cable is in massive price discrimination by charging people who just have to have games of Thro- game of thrones um 19.95 a month for access to hbo or and hbo go and people who absolutely have to have um Cricket games from India have to pay for a special channel, and people who have to have movies pay pay for an extra pan. So that sort of price discrimination is very common, and we've been saying to the cable companies, you can't do that on your other on your other um, uh, service, and that creates a friction because as people move their media consumption from the environment in which the cable companies could engage in price discrimination, i.e., cable television, over to Netflix, Hulu, Voodoo, whatever, the cable but, companies are losing a source of revenue. And yeah, but isn't don't we already hate that when they do that with TV? I, uh, <laughs> well, look, some well, people I, do, but it, there's, I mean, there are really two questions. Do we hate it? But the other is, do we understand a system in which even though part of us hates it, we understand how the fact that it exists makes us better off in yeah, the long well, run? Jim, you sighed. Or you, why, why did you sigh? I didn't sigh as so much as um, uh, sort of lose my place, but it, it really depends on, as Joe was saying, how do you feel about price discrimination? Um, are you comfortable with price discrimination? Um, as an economic matter, price discrimination is neither uh, necessarily good for consumers or necessarily bad for consumers. Um, we are comfortable with price discrimination, or we've at least gotten used to it in lots of markets like cable television, or the fact that any airplane you fly on, the person sitting next to you didn't pay the same amount for the sa- for, for the seat they're sitting in that you paid for the seat you're sitting in. In other markets, we're incredibly uncomfortable with price discrimination. We're uncomfortable with it. I think it's fair to say, um, in in the internet, we're uncomfortable with price discrimination. You know, if if we thought Amazon was charging different people different prices for the same books, most the 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 statistics I've seen on that say people would be uncomfortable with that. So, um, one of the problems is. Um, Serious infrastructure networks or serious products that require a whole ton of initial capital investment have generally relied on price discrimination strategies in order to recoup the investment, Um, Mm -hmm. even in the telephone world. Um, But um, it's not just infrastructure projects like, you know, wires or or, um, things like that. But um, if you think about the costs of, of, uh, of a blockbuster movie... Um, you know, we're all comfortable with the price discrimination that exists in, in in the blockbuster movie. First, it's released for, you know, uh, fifteen dollars at the movie theaters, and then it's released in a uh, different way. DVDs used to be a market; they're not a market anymore. But we used to have all these different kinds of distribution windows, and the windows are essentially a, a technique of price discrimination. So, the answer where, where time is one of the variables. Yeah, where time is one of the variables. But do you think this comfort with price discrimination uh, 
is related to how competitive we see the market in which we're in which we're participating. So you know, back in the day when um, kind of like maybe uh, broadband was um, a few years ago, way back in the day when I was a kid, uh, and cable TV was almost a luxury, and then it started to creep in more to everyday life. Um, the substitute for cable TV was was broadcast TV, and a lot of people had broadcast TV, so it wasn't a necessity. And and so bundling in cable subscriptions maybe was not so bothersome because it was just one of of uh, uh, at least a few options in terms of where you get your um, you know over the air entertainment uh, or over the wire entertainment. Um, but if you, these days where most people will have cable, I, I, um, and there really isn't much choice. Bundling and price discrimination looks bad. You know, price discrimination by a monopolist, a true monopolist, it, without any constraints, um, looks bad, uh, feels bad. Um, and I don't know how much that kind of feeling bad should play into it. I mean, we can go into an analysis of the uh, allocative inefficiency of a of a true monopolist with price discrimination um, capabilities, but uh, or the or the, not the inefficiency, but the efficiency. <laughs> the the fact that you charge different prices means you can reach people with a product who wouldn't have necessarily have been able to pay the price no, if you could only charge a single price. No, sure. And, and right, I'm talking about the allocative inefficiency of the monopolist, the unconstrained monopolist who's able to charge profit maximizing prices, right? It's allocatively inefficient. But the uh, uh, yeah, you had mentioned a natural monopoly, so I thought we weren't talking about such an instance, but ah, fair enough. Yeah. Well, I was, but I'm just curious. I mean, I think that Sure. If we're trying to build our intuitions about what should be allowable in broadband space by what's what seems to be tolerated in in television space, I mean uh, that is. I mean, I I actually hear you know um, a lot of people complain almost all the time about cable companies and TV bundling and TV prices. Um, I mean, people seem to hate it, whereas they do. I think there are plenty of other areas, as you mentioned, where we're perfectly comfortable with uh, with bundling and price discrimination. Um, I'm just not sure that. Uh, Cable TV is one of them, and maybe it's because of the identity of the entity, the the monopolist here, who will be trying to exercise the same power in in broadband. I I think that's fair. I mean, I do think that the trading rate of Americans and and multi-channel video is a testament to the fact that, you know, for the most part, they, they are comfortable with it, although people have been, as they say, cutting the cords with increasing frequency in recent years but i you know i think the point the point you made first is is more fundamental to me which is it depends on what we think the product is and and have we reached a point to use sort of my favorite example we've sort of reached a point where my kids could not go to high school without access to high-speed internet or at Mm. least not experience the high school in the way that it's being designed for them by their teachers and by the high schools themselves, right? They couldn't experience the um, teacher's lectures, which are podcast or the board captures or all the assignments that are distributed by um, the learning management systems that the high school uses and and all that sort of thing. And and we don't want to create a system in which um, those sorts of things uh, are... uh, are price discriminating because if we're going to be Ramsey Ramsey pricing about it, we're going to price the hell out of those things which are absolutely essential. Um, the, the truth of the matter, though, is in the telephone world, there was an enormous amount of price discrimination in order to make sure that the costs of the network could be covered. It's just that the government required the price discrimination to work in the favor for the most part of the little guy. 
Um, right, right. Say more about that. What was the so? What could a phone company uh, charge for what item that that made that work that we might not know about as people who just didn't know what phone charges were all about? Well, I mean, the the classic example is that businesses were charged higher prices for phone service than residences did, even if you were talking about a two flat where the residence was on the second floor and the business was on the first floor. The phone, <laughs> the, the phone on the second floor was a lot cheaper than the phone on the first floor, and so there was a, a government policy of um, essentially cross subsidizing resident cheap residential service through expensive business service or cheap local service through expensive long distance service. I know it's an anachronism to talk about local and long distance these days, um, but those were the two principal ways in which the... Um that's, that's Darcy. That's our guest, Darcy. <laughs> the government made sure that the price worked in favor of... Um, of the little guy. And there's no assurance that an unregulated price discrimination strategy would work that way. Right. Uh, without someone coming in to make sure that uh, things had been uh, sort of assigned to the boxes that would lead to that outcome. Uh, you know, another phrase you hear in all these discussions um, that that I think you might be able to offer some insight about, um, and then I actually want to shift topic kind of kind of dramatically. But the but the 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 last sort of telecom piece of it. Um, so you'll hear people use this phrase "common carrier" or "common carriage," and I feel like that's somehow related to this price discrimination point. Although I'm not sure why I think that. So what is that idea, that common carrier idea, and what what work does that do in the discussions about this media lens versus a telephone lens of looking at the issues? Usually, when we said a, that a company was a common carrier, whether it was a railroad or a trucking company or a telephone company. Um, we we meant three things. The first of which was they had a duty to serve the entire public. Um, uh, if they were the telephone company in the city of Chicago, they had to serve every house and apartment in the city of Chicago. The second thing we meant was they had a duty to charge only just and reasonable prices. Um, and as that was implemented for many decades, what that meant was they were supposed to cover uh, the costs of providing service uh, plus a reasonable profit, but not monopoly profits. Um, and the third thing we meant when we said somebody was a common carrier was to say that they could not engage in unreasonable discrimination among customers. Um, so they, if they had a service, they had to set a price for the service um, and provide it uh, to everyone at that same price. Um, so, so the price discrimination and anti-discrimination principle was part of the pricing picture with this, with this idea called common carrier or common carriage. It was, although it was um, relatively weak in the common law. Um, and as we codified the notion of common carriage, especially it codified it into this mixed um, uh, uh, market of common carriers and utilities – we often accompanied this uh, notion of common carriage with a duty to provide universal service and then permitted forms of price discrimination in service of the notion of universal service. Um, it, it seems like this is an, uh, an inevitable notion that, um, that some people choose to go into businesses which form 
the very core uh, or the very platform for basically all other commerce, right? Um, and so, tra- you know, transportation to get from one city to another, wires to communicate from one place to another, uh, all, you know, just given network effects, so much other commerce would be disrupted without those, um, with, without that platform, um, that it, that these businesses become especially associated with the public interest because of the, the effects. If those, uh, if, if those, if that part of the platform went down, um, I mean, that's how I always understood at, at a theoretical level, kind of the reasons for, um, common carriage restrictions in the common law. And it does seem analogous to the concern about, you know, the, the very example you gave a bit of, ago about how, uh, um, you know, high school education relies on, on, uh, broadband. Um, so much business now relies on broadband. This podcast right now is relying on broadband internet. It is, uh, it is a, a vital input to so much other commerce. Um, and that seems to be the core of the common carriage idea, uh, to me at least. Oh, I think that's totally fair. Um, it's it, it's perfectly accurate as a matter of history and as a matter of historical theory. Um, the difficulty is that since so sometime around the 1970s, we've been struggling w- what to do when the markets seem at the same time to be essential, but in a, in, in a way they were historically, but now open to a degree of competition um, due to technological change or due to change in consumer demand or something like that. What do we do when one of these markets, which we consider to be essential, is now restructuring for in some way um, to be uh, possibly, you know, to have competition? In it, um, because for every telephone market or electric market or transportation market, which we can say is incredibly essential, um, we can also point to the market for food distribution or the market for housing. Right. A yeah, everybody needs housing and everybody's got to buy bread, but those markets are essentially competitive, and so we don't need the government to play the role that it played. That it might play in a market, and so we, then we have to have a, a sort of deep, deeper theory, and that sort of brings back to, to 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 highlight this question of when you look at the current market and you see that you know in seventy seven percent of the country, basically the only high speed wire that's available to people is a cable wire. What do you think about that? Do you think we're stuck there? Do you think we're not stuck there? And then you sort of draw these conclusions about what the regulation ought to be. Um, Based on based on your your reaction to that fact of today of seventy seven percent of the market, so it's not so much how, uh, or at least our our regulatory impulse should not so much be governed by whether we think a particular business is an essential part of the platform, but whether given that it is an essential part of the platform, it also is a is a choke point, um, so that if it's if this one particular line of business is disrupted, we're all in trouble. Whereas you know, even if a whole neighborhood burns down, there are other neighborhoods. Um, so, uh, or, or even if you have monopoly pricing in one area, you might have you know. And even then, we may we may not like the way there's monopoly pricing in housing, but uh, and we may have concerns about our food supply. But um, it's it, it's hard to identify choke points in, in in those businesses, like you can with you know, if if Comcast owned a hundred percent of the wires, um, then it would clearly be a significant choke point. Uh, 
to the rest of commerce that relies on its platform. I agree with that, but let me just lay the, my cards on the table, which is okay. I agree, but my friend Susan Crawford wouldn't probably agree with that, nor would lots of other people in the debate over um, uh, uh, over the question, or even Larry Lessig over the question of you know when do we regulate? Because essentiality may be enough um, for a lot of those folks to say that we. That we that we ought to regulate, and I'm not totally satisfied with that answer because I would also want to say, well, essentiality requires us to, as a regulatory matter, to do other things to address those folks um, who don't have access to it to the degree that we want them to have access to it. And so, um, to come back to my my sort of housing and food examples, we have public housing, we had food stamps or other. Well, we have you know backup systems to provide universal access to those to the degree that we want. And so, you know, even when we had competitive long distance service, we had a system by which we provided universal service. Um, we, we are never going to be satisfied I think, in broadband by saying the market is the only thing we need because we do want universal service for broadband. Then the question comes, well, through which regulatory means are you going to do it? Are you going to do it by sort of telling the broadband folks they have to provide everybody cheap cheap service and we're going to regulate the prices, et cetera, or are we going to do it through something more like we're going to provide vouchers to people who can't afford it so that they can buy service um, uh, like we do on the food or the housing side? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an approach that basically sees you know, markets as a tool um, for providing critical parts of the found, uh, of the of, of the platform, um, so if something is essential, uh, one way to deliver it well is to encourage a market in it when that works, and and then try to identify situations where it doesn't work so well, and where it doesn't work so well, you do other things. Um, but if you just see it as a tool rather than the be all end all, I think everything becomes a little bit clearer. You know, where on, where on the spectrum does this particular social problem lie between? I don't know, the production of, uh, of fancy automobiles and the maintenance of a nuclear deterrent. You know, I mean, those are kind of polar <laughs> opposites, but. Right. And you can, and you, when you're open to the notion that, um, the answer could turn out to be uh, a more market oriented answer, or it could turn out to be a more, uh, uh, top down regulatory, uh, answer. It could be uh, various flavors of hybrids of those things when you're open to the fact that the answer could be a, a range of different things it seems to me you, you might focus more on how well adapted the solution is to the particular problem like you would you would approach a problem with a richer set of of uh, of understandings about the facts of that particular problem oh absolutely and so you know my preferred mix of things ranges from very uh, heavy-handed government intervention on some matters um, to almost no government intervention in some matters, almost simultaneously. And and I've got a paper that I've just wrapped up with a with a journal where I'm addressing not non-discrimination regulation and not you know pricing regulation, but addressing um, what Christian talked about, which is the fundamental interconnectivity of the network. You can reach everybody, right? And so when it comes to um, interconnection between parties who are providing internet service. Um, I think the government ought to be fairly heavy-handed in the in, in saying if you're in the internet service business, you've got to interconnect. Um, and 
the rest of the paper is trying to describe what it means to say you've got to interconnect. But um, that's the kind of strategic behavior uh, denials of interconnection that we want to say, okay, that's a tool in your market behavior kit you're not going to have. As to things short of denials of interconnection, like we're going to you know, worry about discrimination, to my mind, because that's so bound up in this trade-off between the advantages of vertical integration versus the downsides of vertical integration, you have to engage in a richer analysis where you're asking more antitrust-like questions What's the possibility of foreclosure? What's the possibility of conflicts of interest, et cetera? Um, and so I think we, we're going to muddle through, um, as Joe says, with a or I, as I say, but taking up Joe's idea of lots of different regulatory tools, we're going to muddle through um, uh, applying a lot of different kinds of, of regulatory tools to this market um, instead of just taking, you know, or a common carriage off the shelf. But But now... I'm describing my sort of unique place in the middle, um, which is a terrible place for an actor. <laughs> um, Want to be a bomb thrower at one end or the other, and I just can't, right. can't bring myself to do either of those things. <laughs> well, now you've raised the other issue that I wanted to talk about, um, at least for a few minutes, which is, um, you know, in, in other conversations you and I have had, you've mentioned this sort of, you know, wither telecommunications as a, as a, as a topic that's either taught in law schools or, you know, uh, however you want to approach the question, it, whatever specific iteration of it you want to approach. But this notion that this is a field that like, what's the future of this field and what's the future of teaching it, uh, to, to students today and where is it taught and how is it taught? Can you say more about what, um, can you say something about that? Uh, like, what are your feelings about this as someone who teaches in the area? Um, sure. And, uh, it comes partly out of the teaching. And as I've talked to you about before, partly out of the fact that I and a couple of other guys have a casebook called Communications Law and Policy, which is used in, in telecom classes. And we're, we're going to be working on a new edition. And the sort of essential question that I was grappling with is a lot of the book raises regulatory episodes in the telecommunications space, which, if you're thinking about broadband policies, um, seem basically historical, right? So there's a chapter about the breakup of the Bell system. Um, which was an incredibly important issue in telecommunications, but doesn't really seem on the table right now if we're talking about um, broadband because we don't talk about local and long-distance service anymore. We don't talk about separation of services in the ways that we used to. And so um, so what are we doing with that chapter? I mean, our, our, our operative theory is and i think this is this is accurate is well what we're doing is we're addressing a set of recurrent problems market power uh foreclosure that arises from vertical integration and we're describing different um tools in the regulatory toolbox that could be used to address these problems and structural separation is one of them we've talked about structural separations or at least christian has several times um <laughs> in this conversation. And if you move sort of outside of telecom, structural separation still has some real purchase in certain certain other regulated markets, um, uh, natural gas maybe, uh, that it doesn't have so much in telecoms. Um, and so the question is, do, well, do we keep it as a telecom book? Do we try to broaden it to include other 
industries, do we just excise this historical material and only talk about what really seems to be on the table with respect to broadband regulation? Um, and those are, you know, sort of the choices that are that are filtering around for us. Well, at least it's a um, um, you have less of the historical problem than we who teach property have, where we have to decide whether to teach the rule against perpetuities in the estates and land. Um, <laughs> yes, but we have nothing we can say is on the bar exam. <laughs> well, maybe you have stuff that should be on the bar exam, where we have things which maybe shouldn't be. But um, uh, you know, we we have to go back to the Middle Ages and have bad histories of hundreds of years of <laughs> of English and European law that are summarized in two pages. Or uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. At least you have recent experience, and 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 I have to say, those telecom examples seem really directly applicable, as do the. Uh, as does the aborted remedy in the Microsoft case, the structural remedy. I mean, all of these, you know, these are the, these are all recent lessons which bear directly on how we're going to solve the new problems, seems to me. Although it's a challenge, I mean, in terms of either as a teacher or as someone putting together teaching materials, it is a challenge to figure out what's the level of of specificity and particularity with which a student needs to know the facts of that example in order to make it a live example and a usable example for that person in the future. No, oh, I see. Because it's to the extent the example really is historical, it matters less what the shape of the law is with respect to telephones than the concepts that emerge from the that particular issue. Yes, I think, I think that's right. And, um, uh, and it's a little bit like teaching administrative law, which is to really teach the the lessons of this particular case. You have to get the, the folks up to speed on a particular uh, technology, a particular market, a particular um, set of uh, laws, and then say, okay, here's why we were asking this question, and here's what our answer to it was. So to teach the bell breakup, I have to sort of walk them back to a set of technologies that they're not really familiar with. And if I want to illustrate the issue of should the network owner also be allowed to own the thing that's in your home that the bells the bell breakup does that because it was about whether this the network should own the telephone but the thing that the, that the kids know about in the news today is smart meters in the electric field right and yeah. so really teaching about regulatory toolbox maybe i should design a casebook in which the chapter about structural separation is not the bell system but it's something from the electric industry and then the notes sort of do the cross industry analysis now we're doing cross industry analysis in the notes of our casebook but everything that's principal is about is about communications because um, because it's a telecom book, not a regulated industries book or a regulated toolkit book. Exactly. Well, is that um, not having taught telecom before? Um, what would you say is distinctive about it, which makes it more than the law of the horse? Right. If it's not a law of the regulated industry, what is uh, what is the law of telecommunications that in a distinctive way? Well, I would say. Before I answer that, I would say that it is the law of regulated industries. And if you look in the modern law school curriculum, it's mo it's likely to be the only course at a lot of law schools which is actually on regulated industries. Um, uh, there aren't as many courses on electric or gas or things. And and unlike thirty years ago, where if you looked at the 
curricula for most law schools, there would be a regulated industries course. Those sorts of courses are um, are, are are rarer, much rarer these days. So I, I do think in part its value is it's a industries course. Um, I think its value is um, multiplied by just how essential the communications um, market is um, to to the economy, whether it's communications itself, which has been the fastest growing part of the CPI basket for um, over a decade, uh, to, um, to talking about all of the other industries that gain value or productivity on the basis of their increased use of communications. I think it's just, you know, easy to say, yes, it's the law of the horse, but it's a damn mm-hmm. horse. Yeah, right, right. And and and, it, and it's like it going to bring up a lot of different issues than say a health law course where that course will be concerned with understanding, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, now Obamacare and uh you know, um I mean that's also a heavy if I think of one course, you know, other than oil and oil and gas which is um, you know, is treated at some law schools, I would think healthcare law would be the other course which would be about a regulated industry. Absolutely. But regulated in a different way, right? Right, right, yeah. Yeah, and, and you think about drugs, like the, the regulation of pharmaceuticals, both the regulation, the forms of regulation that go into whether it can be marketed or not, what are the terms on which people can compete, so, you know, generic entry and structuring that after the name of pharmaceutical makers' patents expire. Uh, so, yeah, you're, you, that's the, there was, are many different tools that, that might not even come up, I guess, in the telecom area. Or electric power grids, or other, you know, water water supply grids. Yeah, you done, Joe? Yeah, yeah. Joe Joe said he had he had a a, a splitting headache earlier. I think is I that did. Right? My headache has abated uh, somewhat, which is good. Um, it's Jim's uh, soothing presence. I think it is. It is. Um, my other uh, the the other things that caused me to uh, need to move on with my day have not abated. <laughs> so I'm sad because that means we need to conclude our conversation, which has been very fascinating. Yeah, Jim, thanks a lot for joining us. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, uh, I could talk about these issues um, for a long time, but it's been great to talk about them uh, with you two for the past hour or so. Well, we'll have to have you back. We definitely will. Cool. Yeah, All right. T- take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.